Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. This morning we will be reading beginning in verse 7. So Genesis chapter 15 beginning in verse 7. You may recall that last week we witnessed Abraham's faith. Although Abraham still doubted, Abraham had true faith. And through that true faith, he received the righteousness of Christ ahead of time. Abraham was justified by faith the same way we are justified by faith. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And, uh, but Abram said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, which we looked at a number of months ago, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned and broke their covenant, their relationship with the Lord, God responded by entering into a covenant of grace with them. What is the covenant of grace? Well, it is the means through which God establishes a gracious relationship with his people. 
It is the means through which God establishes a gracious, a fundamentally gracious relationship with his people. The covenants then that we see with Noah, with Abraham, even with Moses and David and, and with Jesus in the new covenant, these, these various covenants are all expansions or renewals of this single covenant of grace that was established in Genesis chapter 3. Now here in Genesis 15, we encounter the Abrahamic covenant. We read that on this day, God made a covenant with Abram. Consequently then, this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant, is a part of that covenant of grace that God established with Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. This Abrahamic covenant is the foundation for the new covenant, the covenant that we, we who believe, are in with God. You may recall last week we considered how the covenant of grace is for those who believe. In Genesis 15, verse 6, we, we learned that Abram believed God and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abram received the righteousness of Christ by faith. And thus, he was in a gracious relationship with Yahweh. Again, this teaches us that we also receive the righteousness of Christ, not through our merits, our good works, our zeal, or our piety, but through faith, the same type of faith that Abram possessed thousands of years before, ago. And through this faith, we too are in a gracious relationship with our God. The covenant of grace is for those who believe. We also considered last week that the covenant of grace is for those who believe but still have doubts, for those who believe but still lack assurance, for those who find themselves praying, I believe, but help my unbelief, O Lord. This is where Abram's at in Genesis 15. He's doubting. He's lacking assurance. So if you find yourself in the same place, doubting, lacking assurance, wanting more certainty, then you can know that God desires to condescend to your weakness and assure you that he is your gracious and covenant-keeping God. Now how, how does God assure you that he is your gracious and covenant-keeping God? How does God assure you that he is your gracious and covenant-keeping God. This leads us then to the main point that I want us to focus our attention on this morning. In the covenant of grace, God uses physical and ordinary things to assure us of his gospel. In the covenant of grace, God uses physical and ordinary things to assure us of his gospel. That's the main point I want us to focus our hearts and minds on this morning. In the covenant of grace, God uses physical, physical, earthly and ordinary things to assure us of his gospel. Well, you'll notice that in verse 7 of Genesis 15, God comes to Abram. Right after Abram possesses and professes this true faith in Yahweh, God comes to Abram and says, Abram, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land of Canaan to possess. What's Abram's response? He says, oh, oh Lord, how can I know for sure? How can I know for certain that I shall possess this land? Again, Abram's struggling with this tension between his eyes and his ears. What he sees with his eyes, namely that he's 100 years old, his wife is barren, and they have no children. What he sees with his eyes does not appear to agree with what he has heard with his ears. <laughs> namely, that God would make his family more numerous than the stars of the sky. That God would use his family to bless every family of the earth. That God would give his descendants this land of Canaan to possess. What Abram saw with his eyes did not appear to agree with what he had heard with his ears, and thus he is wanting more certainty. He is wanting God to assure him in ways that go beyond merely hearing with his ears. He is wanting God to engage his other senses. Well, what is God's response? Well, God's response is to conduct this seemingly strange ceremony whereby Abram slaughters these animals, cuts them in two, and uh, a smoking fire pot passes through the pieces of these dead animals. Now, of course, this seems like a very strange and otherworldly ceremony to us as moderns, but for Abram, this would have been a, a very ordinary, typical ceremony. This would not have raised any eyebrows for people outside of Abraham's family and clan. This was a, a typical covenant-making ceremony. That's what we're witnessing here in Genesis 15, a covenant-making, a covenant ratification ceremony. Covenants in the ancient Near East, which, which was the secular context of Abram's day, covenants were ubiquitous. Many different civilizations and people groups outside the Abrahamic family made covenants. This would not have been an unusual ceremony to behold if you could be transported back in time uh, in Abram's day. Now, what, what was a covenant-making ceremony like in the ancient Near East? Well, it usually was between a greater king and a lesser king in a way that was somewhat analogous to the relationship between feudal knights and his tenants in the Middle Ages. These covenant-making ceremonies typically began with a preamble, whereby the greater king would announce who he is. I am king so-and-so of the land of Shinar. I'm the son of this great king. The greater king would establish who he is. The next part of this ceremony would be the historical prologue. In the historical prologue, the greater king would recount the history between the two parties of the covenant, especially focusing on the ways in which the greater king has helped or come to the aid of the lesser king. Maybe the greater king had rescued the lesser king and his people from an invading army. That probably would have been recorded in the historical prologue. Next, these two parties in the covenant would agree upon stipulations and sanctions. The lesser king likely would have to agree to pay a tribute tax to the greater king. 
The lesser king likely would have to supply men to the greater king's army. Uh, the lesser king would have to honor, show honor to the greater king and, and promise and pledge not to engage in any backdoor dealings with other kings. The greater king would then pledge to come to the aid of that lesser king if a foreign army ever invaded his land. Now, enjoined to these stipulations were blessing sanctions and curse sanctions. So if the lesser king failed to keep his end of the covenant, well then the greater king would come and evict him and his people from their land. But if the lesser king kept the terms of the covenant, well, then that lesser king would have a great ally, a great powerful ally by his side. These covenant-making ceremonies would typically conclude with a symbolic event in which animals would be slaughtered, would be cut in two pieces, and typically the lesser king would symbolically pass through the pieces of these dead animals, calling down upon himself a self-maledictory oath, saying something like, do unto me as these dead animals if I fail to keep the terms of this covenant. And with that, the covenant would be ratified. And with that, the covenant would be enacted. Boys and girls, it, it's sort of similar to if you engage in a competition with your sibling. Let's say you're in your backyard and you want to have a foot race with your sibling. And before you start the race, you come to an agreement. Whoever win, whoever loses has to do the other person's chores the rest of the week. In order to finalize the terms of this competition, you shake hands. What does the shaking of hands symbolize? That both you and your sibling are agreeing to the terms of the competition. That's what's happening when these, these animals are being slaughtered and the lesser king is walking through the pieces. It's a symbolic act in which that lesser king is agreeing to the terms of the covenant, especially the curse sanctions of that covenant. Now, notice the similarities between how these covenant-making or covenant ratification ceremonies functioned in the ancient Near East and what we see and read here in Genesis 15. In verse 7, we witness both the preamble and the historical prologue. So we see here two parties. We have the greater king, Yahweh, and we have the lesser king, Abram. Yahweh, as the greater king, comes and announces the preamble. I am the Lord God. He announces who he is. And then he says, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That's the historical prologue. God is recounting the history between both himself and Abram, especially focusing on the ways in which he has benefited Abram. What happens next? Well, God commands Abram to slaughter these animals, to cut them into pieces, and then God appears in a theophany as a smoking firepot and a flaming torch, and he passes through the pieces of these dead animals. Just as the lesser king would pass through the pieces of those dead animals, calling down upon himself that self-maledictory oath. 
What is God doing then here? Well, God is condescending to Abram's capacity, to Abram's weakness, and using a ceremony that Abram would have been very familiar with, using physical, ordinary things that would have seemed, again, very familiar to Abram. Abram would have been able to experience the sights, the smells, and the sounds of these animals being slaughtered and cut in two pieces. He would have been able to experience God coming in a theophany as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which would have been an incredible experience. What was God's purpose behind this ceremony in using the physical and the ordinary? Well, God's purpose was to alleviate Abram's doubts. God's purpose was to grant assurance to Abram. Remember Abram's doubts in Genesis 15? In verse 1, God says, Oh, Abram, I am your shield and your great reward. And what does Abram say? God, what can you give me of any value? Eliezer of Damascus is said to be my heir. Remember God, Abram's doubt in verse 8? God, how can I know for certain that you will give me this land? This ceremony is God's response to Abram's doubts in verse 2 and in verse 8. God here is condescending to the weakness, to the frail capacity of Abram, and assuring him in ways that go beyond just his ears. God is engaging his other senses. Now, God uses physical and ordinary things to assure us of his gospel in a very similar way in which he used physical and ordinary things to assure Abram. Now, of course, God doesn't employ dead animals being cut in two pieces. God doesn't appear to us in a smoking fire pot or in a, a flaming torch. However, God does use ordinary language spoken by ordinary pastors. God does use ordinary bread and water and wine to assure us, to alleviate us of our doubts and deliver Christ and all his benefits to us as his weak people. Now, we oftentimes have an improper relationship, an imbalanced relationship to these physical and ordinary means that God employs. There are many who are discontent with the, the means that God has chosen and want to select their own means that God will bless with his presence. What does this look like? Well, this looks like um, someone saying, I, I don't really need a local church. I don't really need a pastor. I don't need preaching. I don't need the sacraments. These are outdated, irrelevant things. Rather, I experience God's presence when I go on a hike in the mountains or when I go to the ocean or when I do the things I love to do. These things are my church. No, no, we're not in the driver's seat here. We don't get to pick the means that God has chosen to bless with his presence. God has chosen the physical and ordinary things that he wants to use to deliver Christ and his saving grace to us. And what means has he chosen? Well, he has chosen preaching, bread, water, wine, the word and the sacraments. How do we receive 
the word and the sacraments. Engage in the preaching of the word or the ministration of bread, water, and wine. Well, we receive the word and the sacraments by engaging in the rituals of the Christian life, the routines of the Christian life. We are called to embrace the rituals of the Christian life. I mean, think about what we do together at church every Sunday. We, we really do the same things. We sing, we recite, we confess, we pray, we hear, we taste bread, we drink wine. We really do the same rituals every Sunday. But it's through these rituals that we partake of the word and of the sacraments. It's through these rituals that we, deliver, we receive Christ and God's saving grace. We are not to view the rituals of the Christian life as an end in themselves. That is a temptation. Whenever we begin to view the rituals and the routines of the Christian life as an end in themselves, well, we have entered the domain of nominal Christianity, dead Christianity. No, no, we are to embrace the rituals as a means to a greater end. And what's that greater end? Receiving Christ. Oftentimes for people who have experienced time in other Christian traditions that have viewed the rituals of the Christian life as an end in themselves, it's very easy to react and want to get rid of all rituals and have a free, spontaneous, unencumbered relationship with God. Not only is that impossible, everybody has to, everyone inherently practices their faith through the means of rituals, but it's also just not biblical. God calls us as embodied people to embrace the rituals of the Christian life, not as an end in themselves, but as a means of receiving the grace of God. Just as Abram was called to embrace the physical and ordinary means of, of this ceremony of circumcision, which we'll turn our attention to in two chapters, as the means through which he received the grace of God and Christ himself ahead of time. So what is your relationship to the rituals of the Christian life? Are you tempted to discard with them? Wishing that you could have a free and seemingly spontaneous relationship with God? Or are you tempted to view them as an end in themselves? I go to church, I go through the motions because this is what Christians do. Or do you view the rituals and routines of the Christian life as a means of receiving Christ? Do you view the rituals as the channel through which God delivers his grace to you as a sinner? Boys and girls, what is your relationship to the rituals of the Christian life? Do you go to church just because that's what your family does, your parents tell you you have to? Or do you go to church because you want to receive Christ? You want to be assured more and more that he is your Savior and your Lord, that he died and lived on your behalf. What is your relationship to the rituals of the Christian life? God uses physical and ordinary things to assure us of his gospel. Now, as we come back to this narrative, notice who it is that is going through the pieces of these dead animals. Is it Abram or is it God? Who is going through the pieces of these dead animals? Is it the lesser king or is it the greater king? Is it Abram or is it God? Well, it's not Abram. Abram is in this deep trance of sorts. It's God. God comes in a theophany. He appears as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, and he passes through these pieces of dead animals calling down upon himself 
a self-maledictory oath. What is God doing here? Well, he is pledging. He is swearing by his own existence that he will fulfill the promises that he gave to Abram. He is swearing by his own existence that he will provide a son to Abram. And through that son, a great nation that will bless every family of the earth. That he will have descendants that will inherit the land of Canaan. What else is God doing here? Well, God is promising to take responsibility, not only for both sides of the covenant, his side and Abram's side, but God also is promising to take responsibility for the curses of the covenant that Abram and his future descendants will earn. God is promising to take responsibility for the curses of the covenant that Abram and his descendants will earn. This is extraordinary. Now, if you fast forward a bit to the New Testament, Jesus is in the upper room on the eve of his death, and he's instituting the Lord's Supper. And he raises the glass, and what does he say? Do you remember what he says when he raises the glass? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus, through the shedding of his blood, establishes the new covenant. Jesus in that moment is signaling that he is here to fulfill what God promised to do in Genesis 15. On Good Friday, God, through Christ, was made like the pieces of those dead animals for your sin. On Good Friday, God, through Christ, was made like the pieces of those dead animals for your sin, for the curses of the covenant that your sin has earned and merited. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us that uh, we have been redeemed by the curse of the law because Christ was made a curse for us. We have been redeemed from the curses of the covenant because Christ was made a curse for us. Because of this then, Paul says, the blessing of Abram has come to the Gentiles. Do you see the close connection between the new covenant and the Abrahamic covenant? In both covenants, God is the one passing through the pieces of the dead animals. God is the one who's taking responsibility for the curses that our sin has earned. Now, you've probably heard me talk a lot about the law and the gospel or the distinction between the law and the gospel. When the Reformed tradition, the law and the gospel, take on an explicitly covenantal form. The law is what we are required to do. The gospel is what God has done for us. And so the law and the gospel, in the Reformed tradition, take on explicitly covenantal form. So what does the gospel look like in a covenantal context? Genesis 15, where God is passing through the pieces while Abram's on the sideline. What does the gospel look like in covenantal form? Well, Jesus raising the glass and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's Jesus becoming a curse for us. That's the gospel in a covenantal form. What does the law look like in a covenantal form? Well, in the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God enters into with the nation of Israel, with Moses as, as their mediator, in that covenant, God doesn't walk through the pieces. Israel walks through the pieces. 
They take upon themselves the blood of the covenant and swear to do everything written in the book of the law upon the pain of death. So much so that in Jeremiah 34, after Israel's been unfaithful to that covenant, God comes to Israel and says, I will make you like the pieces of dead animals that you walked between at the foot of Mount Sinai because you failed to keep the terms of our covenant. That's the law in a covenantal context. The Mosaic law in that sense is an echo of that covenant of works that we thought about earlier in Genesis that Adam and Eve were in. The difference between the law and the gospel is really the difference between whether or not God walked through those pieces on your behalf, whether or not Christ became a curse for you, or whether you are called upon to walk through those pieces and thus are anticipating a great and and a horrifying day in which God will make you like the pieces of those dead animals. That's the difference between the law and the gospel. So let me ask you, are you under the law or are you under the gospel? If you are in Christ, if you've responded to that declaration of pardon that we recently heard, then when you read in the Bible of the threats and conditions and curses, whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you can be firmly assured that those statements of scripture do not apply to you. Because God has walked through the pieces on your behalf. Because Christ has already been made a curse for your sin. The conditional language of scripture has been abrogated for you. That's what it means to be under the gospel. We obey God's law, yes, but we obey not out of fear, We obey out of gratitude. Is this a gospel that you've responded to? Is this a gospel that you're resting in, that you're trusting in? Is this a gospel that actually propels you to new obedience? Ironically enough, being motivated out of fear that you will become like the pieces of these dead animals does not motivate true obedience. It's actually recognizing that God in Christ has already been made a curse on your behalf. That is the only sufficient motivation when it comes to obeying the law of God. In a few moments, we will be invited by our covenant God to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in this meal, God is assuring us that through the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ, he as I've already said, has taken upon himself our curse, the curse that our sin has earned, so that the sufferings, the trials, the tribulations that you endure in this life are as bad as it will get for you. You no longer have to fear the severe judgment and wrath of God. Let's pray.